Hello and welcome to Delude, the Melbourne Demons podcast. Neats, that was a pretty epic 32nd birthday. A massive night on the town in Mexico City and a huge win against Port Adelaide, which I did not expect. You had a bit of everything, didn't it? <laughs> no, but going back to, to Thursday night, that Port win was awesome. I mean, I thought that Port would be better, to be mm. honest, given that they've had a lot of criticism levelled against them for their yeah. performance against top eight teams. We've been pretty flat. Yeah, and our scoring woes have persisted, but they really didn't fire much of a shot, to be honest. I mean, I, I, they weren't, you know, it wasn't like a 60-point win, but they never really looked like they were in the game. And I thought Melbourne were just brilliant. I, I just think we didn't let them. Our pressure around the ball was just impeccable. The defence has been good for a long time, but the forward line played unbelievably. I just thought Dixon was completely outclassed. Yeah. I really think that May was just unbelievably impressive against him. Um, yeah. We have to talk about the performance of Harrison Petty yeah. and his emergence. I don't think either of us, well, oh, we, particularly us. me. You okay. in particular. After his the debut. biggest doubter. The biggest doubter. Okay, Kieran, I recall Harrison Petty's debut against St Kilda. It was not the smoothest of de- debuts. Okay, well, we're not going to focus on people's debuts. The point is that you were very sceptical uh, when Extremely. Tomlinson went down and he is just Fitted in perfectly, hasn't he? He slotted in seamlessly, and he yeah. really was a star, actually. He yeah. outshone. Crushed Marshall. Absolutely did. Yeah, he was great. And then we just have to talk about Cozzy Pickett's return to form. Yeah, you it know? was so great, wasn't it? It was wonderful, and some of those kicks were just sublime. And But also his pressure. Yeah. He just looked so lively. He looked like he was really, um, really just had a want to to play, put pressure on and to compete. It was excellent to see. Oh, it is amazing. And look, as I think others have said, it's not just about the goals with him. Because as a small forward, you know, there's very fine margins. He took some long shots. They could have been behinds. But the point is his pressure was just insane, you know. Yeah, and Charlie Spargo's kicking is just a thing of beauty, I must say. He's just an extraordinary kick. And Tom McDonald has just been playing in the way that he's been playing all year. So an excellent performance from him. Do you, think, do you think, needs that he'd be our hardest player to replace? In some ways, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure what we would do without Tom McDonald right now. Yeah, and I guess you'd put, you'd put Wiedemann in, but Tom McDonald is so central to our forward line. Especially because of his kicks right. into, for, into the forward line, Both his honest. field kicking and his goal kicking for the most part, yeah, he's got it all. Um, but another player with great um, field kicking has been James Jordan. Such a penetrating You were very into James Jordan on the weekend. Yeah, he looks really, really poised. And we kind of mocked Jordan Lewis early in the year when he said that Jordan reminded him of Simon Black. I mean, I thought that was a bit absurd, but you know what? You sort of see with the penetration he's kicking kind of what he's talking about. I mean, he's got a long way to go, but um, he's a very slick operator, James Jordan. I was very impressed. Uh, And obviously, Christian Petrarca, our superstar. Yeah. Oh, wow. We love him. We love him. But but that's not a surprise. No, it's not. But 33 and three goals. And honestly, he could have had a couple more. Yeah. Um, He's just, he's just, I mean, we've run out of superlatives for Christian Petrarca, haven't we? Yeah. We've run out of words to describe just how impressed we are by him. He's an absolute gun. Um, But look, this week, we're not going to talk a huge amount about the game, given it was so long ago. Um, but that's also because we've got a very, very exciting interview this week with Kane Corns. Yes. Uh, Dissecting the Port Adelaide game with one of Port Adelaide's greatest, Kane yeah. Corns. Yeah. And talking about a lot of really interesting things, including um, his approach to football media. Obviously, he could be a bit of a polarizing figure, but he has some really interesting thoughts on how he's kind of styled himself 
in the media. Definitely. I think that Kane, more than anyone, understands how much it is about theatre and it is about creating tension and, um, you know, it's it's about sort of understanding that the media is as much of a sport, I suppose, as the game itself. And I think that's something he really conveys in this interview. Um, but it's a fascinating insight into his into his approach. He also just has a great football analytical mind. Mm. Um, he speaks so knowledgeably about, you know, every team and, um, and particularly Melbourne. And this is just a really excellent discussion. Yeah, and we learnt a lot about uh, Mark Williams and some of the specifics about what makes him tick. Um, had a bit of a comparison of some of our star players to the greats uh, of Kane's era in the early 2000s. Just a lot of really awesome stuff. Um, and yeah, we hope you we hope you really enjoy it. As you know, the Deluded podcast, we try and feature a lot of really thought-provoking interviews with uh, football journalists and people who are willing to speak their mind. And this is definitely one of them. So absolutely. And it's commensurate with our new rebranding. So mm. we hope you enjoy the new cover art. Mm. Um, and yeah, we're planning on, uh, rolling all of our new templates and new cover art out soon. So give us your feedback on all of that too. Yeah. Basically, we're finally going to lift our social media games. So we're excited about that. So, <laughs> um, Please join Deluded, the Melbourne Demons fan community on Facebook, uh, where we'll be posting a lot more content. Um, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, that'd be great because that means that you get every episode as soon as it drops. Uh, and I guess the last thing is please leave us a review if you like what we're doing. And I suppose even if not, no, I'm sure you do. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say no, just shut up if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I usually say. Um, but thank you all so much once again for joining Deluded. And without further ado, here is Kane Corns. Go Dees. Go Dees. Kane Corns, welcome to the Deluded podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> uh, two tragic Melbourne fans who uh, maybe have something pretty excited ahead of them in the next six or so weeks. I, I watch Melbourne um, I know you want to get to that shortly, but I watched them live last Thursday against my Port Adelaide and couldn't have been any more impressed by what they're doing. So they're, they're a real shot. <laughs> it's great to have you here, Kane. Um, you've talked um, on an interview once about how Bruce McAvaney advised you against spreading yourself too thin and avoiding a saturation point. Um, do you think the deluded podcast <laughs> is the point of oversaturation? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. <yeah. laughs> I've been trying to cut down the workload. I, I've always got that. Bruce uh, advice in the back of my mind. I, I'm not sure I've quite got the balance right. Um, but maybe this is, this is going to tip the scales. Maybe. Great. Uh, I'm glad we're prompted a major reevaluation. Yeah. <laughs> There's always time for deluded, Karen. Please. Uh, <laughs> so, Kate, I want to talk about your media career first. You've said that you base your media career on sort of calling it as you see it, regardless of whether or not that might offend certain players or certain coaches. Um, I know recently you suggested that Trent Cotchin should potentially consider even retiring early given his form slump. Um, you're also often criticised, however, for sort of chasing headlines and manufacturing controversies rather than sort of saying what you actually think. What is more important to you, creating like a meaningful debate by playing devil's advocate and having that sort of view that might seem to be contrarian or just saying what you think? Well, pretty much. I I never say anything I don't believe. I, um, I, I got that advice. My, my dad has been in media for a long time and still is he's 75 he's got a background in the game he's he's in the Australian Football Hall of Fame so he's a great player but he was and coach he was the first coach of the Crows but he was a brilliant media performer um and he had a terrific partnership with a guy called Ken Cunningham that did the um KG and Cornsey sports show over here in Adelaide for a long time very successful and I remember I was doing an internship when I was 18 
And KG said to me, um, don't ever say anything you don't believe because people will see straight through it. And he said, you also need half the people to hate you and half the people to like and respect you. And then that's about the perfect sweet spot where you want to be if you want to have a successful media career. Now, it's always, for whatever reason, some advice you get and you guys will be aware some sticks with you, some doesn't. That, that one from KG always did stick with me. I think, um, so I never say anything I don't believe in. Maybe at times I've gone 10%, 15% too hard on it because often what happens is – you're on a show on a Saturday night on the AFL, then you're on Sunday footy show the next morning. You think, well, I can't really rehash what I've said. So you fall into the trap of perhaps putting a bit of extra theatre behind it or a bit of extra mayonnaise on it, if you, if you like. So perhaps I've been critical of going you know, 10 to 15% extra than what I would have, but I can't remember ever really saying anything I, I don't genuinely believe in. And interestingly enough, I, I'm fascinated to hear that you you were given advice that you have to have a sort of a half-half division between hate and love. Mm. What what division do you think you have at the moment? <laughs> I don't know. Like it's re- it's really hard because if you if you're on social media, which which you are, and you consume it, you would think it's you know it's sort of 85 percent of the people detest you and, and don't like you, um, and that's fine. Like I'm I'm comfortable with that. But then you go on radio and you, you host a show and you get a lot of people ring up and say, look, I really I really like what you do. You, you challenge the thinking. I don't always agree with you. Um, but at least you say it as it is, and then you're prepared to debate it. So I don't know what the split is. I don't have the percentage, but um, I don't think it'll be. I don't think it'd be too far away from that um, 50-50 split. It depends which team you're critical of at the time, of course. I mean, right now, Richmond fans can't stand me because of you know, I've been reasonably strong on calling Richmond season it was over a few weeks ago, and and the talk about Trent Cotchin you, you mentioned and. I think the coach has been complaining and, and sooking and whinging all year. So I've been, you know, I've called that out. So Richmond fans don't like me at the moment. It just depends which which sort of day and, and which footy <laughs> fans you're speaking to. And I'm interested in what you've previously said about current day Australian footballers being so media trained that they're quite vanilla and quite afraid to really express themselves. Um, you know, we used to live in the US for a while. And so you compare that to the sporting culture over there where players are willing to speak about opposition players, opposition opposition coaches, politics, racial justice, like any topics yeah. really. Does it frustrate you that Australian footballers are so media trained? And what do you think it is that sort of strips them of a personality, so do you so to speak, in the media? It, yeah, it's the value of a, a interview with a player isn't as it, it's not as a valuable commodity as it used to be because you know you get them on and they don't you, you really you know you struggle to get much out of them because you're right they're, they're too scared to talk themselves up because that they'll think that'll come back to hurt them if they play poorly or their team loses they're too scared to talk the opposition down or have any bands with them because they think that may come back to bite them it's the culture of Australian footy I, I, Lucy and I got engaged when I was young I was you know 21 and we did a little story for the paper and I was just supposed to go in the little sort of lift out in the middle you know halfway through the paper eventually they ran the story on the front page and I've never been so petrified walking in to the change rooms because I knew all my teammates were going to take the mickey out of me and put it up on the board and draw pictures on it I was I actually rang the paper I said you got it you can't put this on the front page I'm going to be crucified and that's how petty it is but that's that's the culture you grow up in an AFL footy club where if you get too far ahead of yourself, they'll bring you down. Now, that's that's improved. Like, don't get me wrong. A player's personalities are coming through more so on TikTok and they're creating their own content and and that's that's been a 
improvement in the game, but it's always that culture of they'll bring you back down if you're getting too ahead of yourself. That extenuates to the media and a little bit to the media commentary, I think. Like even the people working in the roles that I do, and you mentioned your time in the US, um, you listen to the media commentators. They're just, they're brutal. They just call it as they see it. There's a lot of colour. There's a lot of debate. They make big, brash, bold headlines. And I consume a lot of that because I listen to a, a lot of podcasts, Colin Cowherd and, and Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless and Clay Travis and these types of guys, Bill Simmons, they, they just call it as, as they see it. So I've tried to model and study in a way what they do um, because I think it works and I think it hits the mark. And I don't think we have that in Australia. There's a void of doing that. And I think it might be a function of Australian defamation laws in some ways. It is a lot, a lot harder to really say what you think in Australia than it is in America, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I've only ever had one um, brush with that. I was critical of umpiring um, last year. I I won't repeat what I said because I don't want to go down the whole process <laughs> again, but I was, I was quite critical of an umpiring decisions against a certain player. So it was the only time I've come close to um, being accused of defaming someone, not that it got anywhere near that point, but it's, yeah, it's quite confronting when you get that legal letter and, oh, gee, what have I, and it's really stressful. So, yeah, it's, there's a way of pushing the boundaries without, um, you know, defaming anyone or putting yourself at risk of getting sued. Mm. Kane, there's a lot of short-termism in football media, um, I think you'd agree. So a few weeks ago, Ben Brown was no good. He should yep. leave Melbourne, ditched the four-year contract. He's done for. Now Melbourne's fixed, uh, you know, Ben Brown has fixed Melbourne's forward problems. Everything's sweet. You know, here comes the premiership. Do you think this era of hot takes is ruining football journalism? I don't think it's ruining it, it but it's across the boards. As I said, I consume a lot of the American stuff. The NBA finals are on right now. So Phoenix win the first two games, and I'm listening to everything. Phoenix are going to sweep. Sweep in four. Um, Milwaukee don't have another superstar other than Giannis. And Chris Middleton's no good. Then they win game three. So now it's 2-1. Milwaukee have got game four at home. And it's all of a sudden Milwaukee are going to win it. And, and Giannis is the best player on the planet. And I'm going, well, hang on. Two days ago, you were saying they're going to get swept. So I, I don't think it's just in um, Australian sport in and in AFL. I think you got – I'm reasonably careful with that. I've certainly been caught out multiple times by making those calls and having that snap judgment. I Even you know, an example of one I got badly wrong was when Richmond traded for Dion Prestia. I said, well, what are they doing? They've just not made the finals. I think they're more in a rebuilding phase. They're not in the premiership window. They shouldn't be getting Dion Prestia. And next minute they've won three out of the next four premierships and I'm sitting there looking like an idiot. So um, there is, you got to be careful when people are quick to remind you of it. So I don't think it's ruining it, but what you're after is you're at the, the the great thing about live TV or live radio is that snap judgment, initial response, reaction, responding to what's just happened. So there's a bit of that, but I think most people are, are pretty conscious of not making those instant judgments. I want to know, though, Kane, how you strike the balance, because obviously there's a lot of pressure in the industry to say something new and interesting, you know, something that moves the needle, something that makes the news. And to just say, well, you know, it's hard to tell what this means. Let's just see what happens in a few weeks. It's pretty boring. No one really wants to hear mm, it. How correct. do you reconcile those, those two things? Uh, you, you, it's a really good question. And it's, it's, it's a um, debate you have in your mind constantly, like a lie in bed going, well, what am I going to talk about? What's going to get a reaction, but what's not going to come back to get me? What do I genuinely believe? How do you see it playing out? And 
you know, an example of that, I remember writing an article uh, for the West Australian. I do a piece over there. They're very parochial in Perth about their two teams similar to, to Adelaide. And I, I said, if West Coast don't win it this year, they need to, they're going to have to rebuild their list because they've got 10 players. I'm just picking a number. I can't remember the exact. We've got eight players over 30. They don't have enough draft picks coming through. So you, you base it on fact, really. That's what I try and do. So you analyze the situation. Think, well, Hearn's going to finish. Kennedy's going to finish. Nick Nat's going to finish. They don't have anyone to replace these guys. I reckon they got to win it now or they're going to have to rebuild the list. So that's sort of an instant the process that goes through my mind. Another example, I, I said it was the worst Crows team in 30 years after I watched them play two preseason games. Now, that's a big call. But when I when you look at it and you think, well, they got half their list that are 18 or 19 years of age, haven't played much footy. Uh, what's their midfield look like? Who's going to be the backup ruck? Taylor Walker's 31. Who's going to kick their goal? So this is, I'm just giving you an example of how my mind works speaking out loud before. I, so it's not just a snap. Crows are the worst team in 30 years. I don't just wake up and say that. I actually uh, rationalize it in my head. Yeah, they, they won three out of the first four and you're thinking, oh gee, I got that one wrong. But as I sit here now, they're 16th. They've just kicked their lowest score ever in a game on Friday night. I think, well, that wasn't too far off. But anyway, that's how I... It's how my mind constantly works before I make those opinions. Do you think people can be a bit soft on player performances? <laughs> no, and I say that I say that meaningfully because I think uh, one thing that I I've always been struck by is you know you compare it to the US and coaches will be moved on in the US even if they've had successful seasons, right? Like that's not there's always sort of an obsession with improvement and and seeing who the best available is regardless of whether or not. Um, you have the you have an excellent coach or an excellent list manager or whoever at the time. Whereas in Australia, we really do prior pro, sort of uh, prioritize stability and this longevity of you know a coach mm. or a player at a club. Are, the, are we too soft? Um, there's a little bit. There's a little bit of that. But I was that when I played. Like I, I consumed everything that was said about me. Any criticism, I, you know, players that say they don't read the paper is the biggest myth. And that's one thing I've learned from here because they, they say that they don't read the paper or consume it but then they remember exactly what you've said about them whenever you see them so they, they do are they a bit they're a bit sensitive um are, are you more talking about are the clubs too slow to act like if it, for example david teague you know it appears though he's not the guy for carlton should they sever ties with him now do you, do you feel like they're a bit more lenient than what some yeah. other sports are I think so. Or even the fact that, you know, and this was discussed a little bit, if Alistair Clarkson is available at all next Mm. year, everyone should be looking at him, regardless of whether or not you think you've got a good guy for the job at this present time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think we're we're reasonably forgiving in that space. You know, there's probably five jobs that Alistair Clarkson could have now, but I think there's a bit of finances that come into that as well, like, um, you know, coaches' salaries. If you wanted to move on, pick a name if you wanted to move say say Chris Scott from Geelong you thought his time was up there and you wanted to shunt Alistair Clarkson you've got to pay out Chris Scott the money and that goes into the soft cap whereas in American sports if you're going to compare it you know billion dollar owners don't really care about paying out one or two million bucks or a bit more whereas in Australia we're a bit more conscious of the way that we're spending our money right because they're member owned clubs that makes sense um, yeah. So turning to the game last week, we obviously had a huge win over Port Adelaide, which we were thrilled about, which I'm sure you were probably a bit disappointed about. <laughs> um, Port Adelaide has struggled this year against top eight teams. Do you think this win is more of a reflection on our brilliance or Port Adelaide's uh, struggles against top eight teams? 
it's a bit of both. I, I think Melbourne's record against the, the best teams is there for us all to see. Like I think I think they're six and zero against top eight sides. Or so. yeah, their only losses were were Collingwood, Adelaide, and can't remember the other team. But I don't yeah, think it was one of those. But, but yeah, it wasn't a top eight team. So their record is there. It's it's proven. Whereas Port Adelaide is also proven. So I thought Melbourne were brilliant. Honestly, the way um, and they they. They'd been flat in terms of their offensive. Uh, I think that averaged 62 points the last three weeks leading to that game. So I wanted to see a bit more. They kicked eight goals to half time. I thought Max Gorn is unbelievable, and you almost had to be there live to see what he did uh, without getting too technical. For, for the captain and the ruckman, he was actually playing ruck, but he was also going behind to pick up Charlie Dixon, who's Port Adelaide's most dangerous forward. He was doing that so Stephen May could be free and patrol across half-back, which he's been doing so well. I thought it was just a, a little thing that I hadn't seen from Max before and just an example of how much buying there is at Melbourne and how selfless they are as a group. Petrarca's, a, as we know, a star. He's played three finals, Christian Petrarca. I think he could really shape the finals this year, similar to what Dustin Martin has done. But they're just all in. That You can just tell a, a team that is uncompromising, regardless of whether the game's going their way or not, if they're struggling to score, that the way that they... Um, process the way that they defend the ground, the way that they play for each other, it looks like a it looks like a premiership team to me. I know there's a long way to go with that, but that's what premiership teams look like, and Melbourne have that at the moment. Geelong will be tough to beat. The Dogs will be as well. Brisbane, who knows? They got some injuries, but they're the four for me clearly that are starting to separate themselves. On Petrarca, you were one of the best taggers in the game in your time, and I'm sure you tagged some sensational players, including you know players like Simon Black and so on. Where do you think Petrarca will end up relative to some of the giants of your era? He's hard. To, he's almost hard. Well, he's really hard to tag because it's the ones that can be so damaging in the midfield, but then go forward. So for me, I couldn't play as a defender. I was too slow and didn't have the, the body strength one-on-one. So for example, if at my time, if I went to Christian Petrarca, he would go midfield, but then he'd test me straight forward. It's like what Dustin Martin has done. That's why I struggled to get a matchup for him. Um, it, it's frustrating for me a little bit with Christian because I've been reasonably critical. It's taken him, what, six, seven years to realise what playing AFL to the best of your ability takes and the sacrifice, I think. Like, just look at him. He's got that hardened, chiselled body now. I think, you know, there's been, I think, self-admittedly, um, some puppy fat there and how seriously has he taken it. So I'm glad he finally realised what it takes and you can absolutely see that. So some, a little bit of frustration has taken him this long. But the next five years, I mean, he could he could easily take over Dustin Martin as the best player in the game. And just out of interest for trivia's sake, who was the hardest player you ever tagged? Yeah, I, I get this one a, a lot, and it's a strange not not a strange answer, but Boomer Harvey, I just couldn't. I had no, I couldn't stop him. So um, game, AFL games record holder, um, and the reason for that is because he's the smartest footballer I've ever played on. Like his ability to find space to turn one position. So my goal was always to keep my opponent under 20 disposals. It was just a little thing, I don't know, for whatever reason, in the back of my head. He could turn one into three and four, and then he could go forward and have that craft and um, just a really tough, not not tough in terms of, you know, dirty or anything, but just so competitive and tough in terms of mentally tough to will himself to the contest. So him and, and Gary Ablett Jr. was the other one who was just an absolute freak as well for a similar for a similar reason, but more pure brilliance from from Adler. 
And Kane, the game obviously seems to have evolved a little bit away from Tigers, or at least this season it has. Um, yeah. Of course, Matt DeBoer did not play against Melbourne when you would have expected him to be on a Petrarca or Oliver. James Harms has quite rarely been used as a tagger in the Melbourne midfield. Do you think the tagger role is dying slash dead? It's been dying for a while, yeah. So what happens is um, one team comes along and has success, everyone else tries to copy it. So Hawthorne didn't have a tagger, win four premierships in a short space of time. So everyone starts to copy, well, if Hawthorne don't do it, why would we do it? And then Richmond come along and they do it their own way. They have the small forwards, the forward half pressure, turn it over in your front half, back your own midfield in, let Dusty do whatever he wants. Trent Cochin will do the bullocking work, no tagger. So we'll copy what Richmond are doing. So it just, just swings a little bit um, around like that. And all teams are into this defending the ground as a unit, as an 18-man group. And they think if you take one person out of that 18 who's assigned to a player, that opens up holes. So that's the reason behind it. I don't fully I don't fully support it. Like if I'm playing Carlton tomorrow, put someone on Sam Walsh. Like it's just an absolute no-brainer. Just because if Sam Walsh doesn't get the football, who else is going to get it in the midfield? It doesn't make a little bit more difficult when you've got a midfield like Melbourne, so Petrarca is a tough matchup. If you tag him, what do you do with Oliver? Um, Western Bulldogs are a little bit the same. I think it's a bit horses for courses, but I don't think coaches use that tactic enough, and I still think it's a valuable one that they can use. I want to talk about Mark Williams. There's been a lot of talk this year about Mark Williams's impact on the club, but it's all been very opaque and very much like, oh, he's an out-of-the-box character, whatever that means, or he does things his own way, again, whatever that means. Can you tell us anecdotally, why is Mark Williams such a valuable asset for Melbourne as he was for Richmond when they were really redeveloping their list? So the role of a coach, your only job, is to make your players better, by extension, make your team better. He only cares about making the players better. So, for example, we used to – he's so big on the skill of the game. So, he's got a thing called kicking school. And for a senior AFL coach to three times a week put us through a program, which he called kicking school, which meant little things like kicking the balls with tennis balls to make sure the contact on your boot is right. He would have targets set up in the gym and he would give you a short reaction to turn around and make a quick decision under pressure. He would um, trash talk you a little bit in a fun way to, to provide that extra pressure that you get from the crowd and from the opposition. One day we had an assistant coach driving his car around the oval with the sunroof open and we had to try and lob the balls in his car. He was innovative, but all he cared about was making his players better. So if he, if he sees something, He's got no filter. So if Bailey Fritch missed a ground ball on Thursday night, I said, Bailey, second minute mark of the third quarter, you missed that ground ball. Come with me now, unscripted. We're doing ground balls. And I just noticed this. I reckon you didn't turn your body at the right angle. If you could do that, and look, I'll show you how to do it, this could improve your game on the weekend. So that's just, I mean, it's very micro in a way, isn't it? Like to have a senior coach, well, he's not a senior coach now, but he was exactly the same as when he was a senior coach, doing that and focusing on the genuine fundamentals of the game is unique and something that I haven't. But just his passion, uh, I had uh, breakfast with him and a few other the 04 boys two Fridays ago and he looks as healthy I've ever seen him, as happy. He's so complimentary of Simon Goodwin and Alan Richardson for getting him back to Melbourne on a three-year deal. He thought they'd give him one. So just, just all in. Um, all he cares about is making his players better, if that explains a little bit about it 
there's some frustrations there. As, as I said, he's got no filter. So halfway through a meeting, a coach might be talking about ball movement and he'll put his hand up and completely change the topic and <laughs> players will be like, oh, no, we're going to be sitting here for another 15 minutes because Choco looks. So there's that, there is, he's not perfect, but at the heart of it, he's a great person who you know is authentic and just wants to make you better. Do you think he should be a senior coach again? Absolutely, I do. Um, and I think I think there's going to be a shift, like what Chris Fagan has done at Brisbane's 60 years of age, I think. So Choco's 62. I wrote an article about it last week. Um, seeing the American coaches, Andy Reid, Super Bowl champion, Bill Belichick for what he's done, they sort of celebrate and buy into the age and the wisdom of, of that over there. We don't do that here. Will he get the opportunity? Um, don't know. I hope so. I hope so. And it's amazing to hear the Melbourne players and, and everyone involved at the club speak about him because he's, he's coaching amateur footy like two years ago. It's amazing. It's an amazing story, really. Yeah, now he seems to be like the chief motivator on the Yeah. You know, he's always... Well, he's at the game and my boys were there and they're like, Dad, because I always speak about Choco and they know how much I love him. Um, like, Dad, did you see Choco out in the warm-up giving it to the Melbourne player like, on the field with his being at like... Just the, the energy is phenomenal, really. Yeah, and he seems to be doing an amazing job with our Indigenous players, which is which is obviously great. Well, he's always – that's always been such a strength of his. So even when we won the 2004 Premiership, the, the connection and the bond that he had with those Indigenous players, and um, he realised how special and how their unique attributes contributed to make us better. And he actually called the group of Indigenous players that played in 2004 in their own separate group in a meeting before the game. And he said, guys, the result – you know, he's almost going to hinge on the way that you play today, but he would have done it in his own way that didn't put extra pressure on them. And you look at Wanganin kicked four, Pickett won the Norm Smith medal, Sean Bergheim's amazing. Peter Bergheim was one of our best players on the day. So he's always had that extra, I don't know, the sixth sense to be able to connect with um, how unique and how special the Indigenous players have been. You can almost hear the Melbourne supporters getting excited hearing this yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Day, well, Cosy Pickett, my goodness. <laughs> um, on that subject, do you think Melbourne's solved its mid-forward connection issue this year or has it just avoided the issue by becoming the stingiest defence in the comp? bit of both. I think they remind me a little bit of Ross Lyon coach teams. So St Kilda maximising what you've got by being hard to play. It's a little bit of Sydney as well under the Paul year, uh, going back a while to that 2006-2005 area. But I still think Melbourne have enough talent. Like Bailey Fritch is phenomenal. He's a phenomenal player. Like he, he's not quite getting the credit he deserves yet, but he will. Um, and he's he's a, Tom McDonald once again was enormous on the weekend. Brown's going to improve. Like Ben Brown knows where the goals are. He didn't kick any on the weekend, but give him some continuity and um, get him in the forward mix for a while, a month or so, and he'll he'll come good. So I'm not. I was concerned about it for a while, just in terms of the way that they were moving the footy. But from what I saw on Thursday night, um, the talent is there to be able to do it. Do they put Petrarca forward a little bit more? Um, they use him in that mid-forward role. I think they can. I think they've got enough options. I mean, we're not talking about a side that's got no talent forward of the ball. So I think they'll work it out, and I think they're starting to. And what should we do about Sam Wiedemann, Kane? <sighs> the choice might be out of your hands. Um, that's what happens to good sides. Some players get pushed out. Um, he may be one of them. He'll probably look for other opportunities. But if you've been on a list for six, seven years and you haven't commanded your spot and you're not a walk-up start, then are you that sad to see players like that go? I know there's 
been some promising signs and there's obvious talent there. But sometimes you have to lose a couple. You made you made your bed with Ben Brown with a four-year deal, so you can't trade him out with the money he's getting paid. So, you know, Sam might be the one that gets pushed out, but I don't think it's a disaster for him or the club. Turning back to the defence for the moment, um, obviously Lever and May have been absolutely spectacular this year. How do they compare to Wakeland Corns? <laughs> well, it's a good question because Chad was a bit ahead of his time with the, so the, the modern ways, those these intercepting defenders. Like Stephen Mays is good. And you, as once you almost need to see, you guys wait to, you almost need to see him live to see how organized, how quick he reacts. He plays like a forward. Like he, he just see ball, get ball. I don't really care. I'm just going to read it and back my judgment in. Chad was a bit the same um, in 2004. Chad started as a forward. Um, the start of the year, they said, we're going to push you back. And he was nervous about it, but he just played it like he was a forward. So, whereas Daryl Wakeland was more your lockdown, dour defender who's not going to let his opponent touch the footy, but he's not going to, you know, get the footy more than eight times a game. But Lever and May, the best intercepting defense or the best defensive duo in the game at the moment and you know both will be all australian can you recall a better duo in the last 20 years i know it's a bit of a biased question question. (laughs) yeah i wish i had some time to think about it um well rants and grimes perhaps but grimes probably wasn't at his absolute peak when when Rands was dominating, you'd go back to sort of now Michael and Justin Lepich back. In the, yeah, I, I, I can't think of anyone right now off the top of my head because they're just playing it in such a unique way. And the opposition are having all sorts of trouble. They know what they're going to do. Port Adelaide knew what Stephen May and Jake Lee were going to do, but they couldn't stop it. So, so you've got 10 assistant coaches who have a week to plan on how to play against them and they still had no answers. So, yeah, it's a good thing. And then you've got Harrison Petty who just decides to emerge well, yeah. out of nowhere. <laughs> well, I thought, and it's a credit to the coaches. I said this during the broadcast of the game. Um, when Tomlinson went down, I was like, well, probably put Tom McDonald back. He's played that role before. He's been pretty solid key defender. I think that's the obvious move. But they held him forward and brought in Petty. I thought, oh, I don't know much about this Harrison Petty and Tom McDonald. No, I would have thought he was ready to go back. But credit to the coaching staff to back him in and also keep Tom McDonald forward. Yeah, he's been excellent. So, Kane, turning to this week, we've struggled against certain teams outside of the eight, which means that this game is a little bit of a danger game against Hawthorne. Should we have any concern, do you think? And, and what do you think are the sort of critical matchups this week? I don't think there'll be any concern this week, but you're right, Melbourne have... Um, there was a game against North Melbourne earlier on the year down in Tassie where they took a long time to get going. They lost to Adelaide. They lost to Collingwood, um, GWS you mentioned. But Hawthorne, they're running out of players like they really are. So Jath just gone down with a knee. He's going to miss the rest of the season. But basically, Hawthorne's whole defensive structure is gone. Sicily hasn't played all year. Gunston hasn't played all year. So I'd be shocked if Melbourne didn't get this one done by a good six goals on the weekend. And Kane, last question from us. Um, do you think that if Melbourne has its intensity up in the midfield, as it did against Port Adelaide and the Dogs, for example, that there's any team in the comp that can beat them this year? Yeah, I do. I think, as I said, I I think the Western Bulldogs can absolutely match them through the midfield and they got a whole heap of talent forward of the ball as well with Bruce and Norton and some other smaller players. So in terms of the midfield battle, and they got two good Ruckman, depending about Stefan Martin and what sort of shape he's in. I think they can match them in the midfield. Like Bont 
amazing, probably win the Brownlow, Libba, McRae, Bailey Smith. These, so the names are there and, and the Western Bulldogs have shown that they can match them. They, they would be the biggest threat for me, I think, from a Melbourne point of view. And, and if you get Geelong on a good day as well, who knows um, if Jeremy Cameron comes back and Hawkins fires and Dangerfield starts to hit his straps. But they're the best three. I think the premiers are going to come from the Western Bulldogs, Geelong or Melbourne. Um, I know there's a long way to go, but that's the early prediction. But from what I saw, as I said earlier in the podcast, Melbourne looked like a premiership team to me. A great note to end on. Kane, thank you so much for joining the Dear Leader podcast. I love your story. Thank you so much for having me.